Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we are joined by Jonathan Brush. Jonathan is the president and CEO of Unbound, which seeks to equip students for their future through project-based education, Christian leadership development, and hands-on experience in the real world. Jonathan is a homeschool graduate and a homeschool dad of six plus two foster babies. He worked for nine years as a director of admissions for a private liberal arts college and then spent over 10 years working for non-traditional higher education. So he's a perfect guest for Anchor. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation and really appreciate what you guys do. And it's really fun to be here. Yeah, excited for this episode. We'll be talking about trends in higher ed, some of the current disruption we're seeing. We're going to talk about project-based learning and other ideas and concepts that maybe to some of our listeners don't seem to uh, traditionally not associated with kind of liberal arts and classical education. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting. Before we dig in, though, uh, we always start the Anchored Podcast by talking about our guests' own educational journey. So right. I already mentioned that you were homeschooled. So talk to us yeah. about your childhood, uh, uh, your homeschooling. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was homeschooled. And the older I get, the more uh, amazing that seems to me. I, I still to this day really don't have any idea how my mom found out about homeschooling. Um, I had uh, actually had a foster sister who went to a public school and she was a good bit older than I was. And my mom said, we're not doing that. So I was a, a Protestant boy in the, the only Protestant kid in a Catholic school in my little town. and um, But I rode the high school bus. And uh, the high school bus, uh, unbeknownst to me, was kind of rough, and I just thought it was normal. And so there was a big uh, bus-clearing brawl one day, and I didn't think see fit to mention it. But when I came home, I had made friends with the biggest, ugliest kid in the bus. And he took me to the house, and he told my mom, he said, Mrs. Brush, don't worry. I don't let anybody beat him up or sell him drugs or give him beer or anything like that. And my mom was like, what are you talking about? And so she asked me what had happened, and I just gave her an account of what I thought was a normal sort of school bus ride. And uh, yeah, next thing I knew, I was homeschooled. And uh, it was a brand new thing. She had to explain to the superintendent what it was. And that was a kind of a pattern for my life. Um, I was the first homeschool student admitted to the college I attended. And I really didn't know hardly anybody else was homeschooled until I went to college. Um, and then only knew a handful. And so, yeah, to, to work a little bit in the homeschool world today is just kind of amazing. I can remember begging my parents, you know, don't take us to the don't take us to the grocery store before two o'clock in the afternoon. because We don't have to explain this one more time. Um, so so it's, it's been a really fun journey. So I went to I was uh, homeschooled. I went to a private uh, college, uh, had a really good experience there, graduated magna cum laude. Um, like I said, my mom helped write the homeschool admissions guidelines. Um, the second homeschool student we admitted graduated summa cum laude, uh, perfect 4.0. She was also extremely beautiful. So I did the only really intelligent thing I did in college. And I, I married her as soon as we graduated. And uh, then I became the director of admissions. Uh, well, I became a admissions counselor for the college. And then in, in a year or two, I became the director of admissions, which was uh, a, a fit of institutional insanity on the part of the college, but was a really good deal for me. And uh, even more so, the president got me confused with my wife. And so for nine years, I got introduced as having graduated summa cum laude with a a perfect GPA. And after the 10th time I corrected him, the VP for administration said, don't, don't bother anymore. Um, so I tell my wife that her, her, uh, GPA in college was well used by the family, even if it wasn't quite worn by her, uh, through all those times. And, uh, so, so yeah, so that was my educational journey in terms of, um, coming from homeschooling from non-traditional education to more traditional education. And then, um, from on from there. So. That's incredible. I mean, you, you really were, were homeschooled before 
became fashionable, so to speak. Um, what, That's did, right. Yeah. Was, what was your mom? I mean, did she, was it kind of bootstrapping and just, I mean, now there, there are so many options for right. homeschool, for Protestant, for classical, for, I mean, all kinds of, did she just kind of create her own curriculum and, and. Yeah. So I, I laugh because we got a little bit of everything, right? We started out with Calvert School. I don't know if anybody ever remembers that, but um, it was a correspondence type school. And we did that for a year or two. And my mom's like, oh, I can do this. And so when I kind of had my own kids and we were looking at homeschool stuff, that was the first time I actually entered the official homeschool world. And I was like, oh, we did a little classical. We did a little Charlotte Mason. Like I didn't really know the names of those things, but uh, we had done all those. And my mom just kind of put it together. And like I said, I, I still am somewhat amazed you know, pre-internet, this is, I, I honestly don't know. And I should probably ask her um, how she, uh, you know, originally heard about it, but yeah, she just forged forward and, you know, like, you know, all of her family, all of her friends thought she was completely nuts. So we we're going to be complete uh, basket cases in terms of our, our, our future. And uh, she just stayed the course and it was a, uh, it was a tremendous shift in our family culture and it has, you know, multi-generational impacts with my kids now. And, and it was really, really remarkable. So. So you homeschool all of your, all of your own kiddos as well? We do. Yes. Uh, so I have six children. And like you said in the intro at the moment, two foster babies, one of which I think is headed for adoption. And um, yeah, so that's been a, a an ongoing thing. And we've homeschooled them the whole way through. And it has been, yeah, one of the chief blessings and joys of my life to be able to do that and for what it has done for our family culture. And uh, I'm not a, a militant homeschooler in the sense I think that's the only way to do things. Uh, but I will tell you that it has been just a, a tremendous blessing for our family. And I've, I'm grateful to my parents and I'm grateful to the pioneers, the folks who made it legal, made it possible. And uh, I feel like homeschooling is the one place in maybe the entire Western world where the free market innovation hits education. And it's been so much fun to be in that space professionally and personally and just constantly benefit from like these new ideas that just pop up, some of which are dumb and some of which are fantastic. Um, and just watching that innovation, including things like classical education, which is innovative in today's world, even though it's right. ancient. Um, but, you know, watching that be perfected through various things like classical conversations and things like that um, and, and different curriculum. And that's been really, really interesting to watch that progress as a as a person who was in it as a student, who is in it as a parent and, and as a professional, it's been really, really fun. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you became eventually the director of admissions from, from the school, uh, which you attended. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a uh, director of admission for about 10 years in the early 2000s. Is that right? That's correct. Um, I think I left the school in 2010. 2010. Um, so from kind of 99 to 2010 is when I was in admissions yeah. and for most of that time as a director. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on this a little bit. I mean, what kind of enrollment trends or just trends in higher ed did you notice kind of during those those 10 years? And, and you've been in higher ed ever since. What have you what have you noticed since then? Yeah, so there was three major trends that actually prompted the rest of the direction of kind of my life and, and led me to Unbound. Um, the first of these was, well, well, first of all, it was an interesting time to be in education, just like it was an interesting time to be anyplace else. Like I entered education where the educational world from a mission standpoint had spent 70 years perfecting direct mail marketing. And then it wasn't just like it got disrupted. It was like every year for the first four years or five years I was in there, it got disrupted every year. I mean, now we need a web page, and now it's a web 2.0 and now there's email marketing and now there's social, you know, and I was leaving about the time social media was becoming a thing. Um, and so it's just like, just everything was turned topsy turvy, right? I mean, like it was, you used to come in, follow the, the lead person who was the dean and do what they did because they had done it for their entire career. And now the dean is like hiring people and saying, can you teach us how to do this? Because the students had done it, but the, the employees hadn't. 
And so it was just a very interesting time to watch that from a, a business standpoint really completely change. But from an educational trend standpoint, there were three things that just really caught my attention. The first was that when I graduated, having paid for college entirely by myself, I, I had borrowed $7,000 to earn an undergraduate degree, which was a great deal. I, I was happy to have borrowed it. I was happy to pay it back and didn't even mind the interest because I thought it was totally worth it. Um, by the time I left the college I worked for, I was watching people borrow uh, you know, seventy to eighty to a hundred thousand dollars in two thousand nine, two thousand eight, to a degree to get a degree in music because they wanted to be a high school music teacher. And look, I don't have to be fantastic at math to know that those those numbers are not going to ultimately work. And so, when I was watching just this trend where people thought a college degree was worth whatever cost was put on it, and I didn't see my institution as gouging people. I saw us in this crazy arms race where. You know, we're a division three athletic organization and we need a, a you know, a D one looking stadium to be competitive because the, the market is driving that and that costs lots of money. And so then we kind of reverse that, but that's okay because the student, you know, the federal student loan picks up every year. And so we can kind of charge more. And there was just this really terrible sort of cycle. And I, I literally came home and told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm making a living asking people to make bad financial decisions. And that's what led me to ultimately leave traditional education. But at the same time, I watched my college, which had been tr Christian, but not with a really strong statement of faith. Um, after the 2000 presidential elections, everything on campus culture completely changed. I majored in philosophy and religion, had a 4.0 in my major. I had no idea what any of my professors believed. Uh, they, they argued from all points of the compass, and they gave me a really phenomenal education. By 2002, I had kids in my office saying, my professor said they will fail me if I espouse anything that looks like traditional Christian beliefs. Same professors. Um, but the culture war had just landed after that 2000 presidential election. And so all of a sudden, it became this real battleground, and there was only one right answer. And you couldn't hire uh, people in certain disciplines that didn't have an all, a, a different opinion. And so I just watched this really significant worldview shift. And then finally, I started to really question whether the education people are paying so much money for and, and, and going through such a kind of um, agenda in terms of ideas for was actually translating to practical knowledge that was helpful. And my conclusion was that in lots of ways, it was not. Uh, that college was optimized for a workplace that no longer existed. And, and it was slow to sort of catch the difference. Um, and so all those three things were, were big changes that I saw during my time. And they ultimately drove me to do what I do now. Um, but also left me with a profound frustration because I felt in the process, college sort of half shifted <laughs> to some of those market realities. And in the process, gave away the things that I really thought colleges should do, uh, which is the really deep academic thinking that is, and richness that I think is essential for any culture. Um, and so it was, it was sort of like we end up with the worst of both worlds instead of the best of both worlds uh, was my perspective and my opinion. So, Wow. I mean, that's what a time to be in enrollment. Yeah, it, it was, it was like. fascinating. So. I mean, fascinating, but also terrifying looking, looking back. Um, right. I just, I just recently finished, uh, the, the coddling of the American mind. Um, yes. and, and it talks book. about a lot of, a lot of those things, but I, I, I think for a lot of folks that are not in education, right. Um, I, I think a lot of folks still believe, oh yeah, it's just like it used to be, right? Like, like we always say, there are folks that think the SAT is just like the SAT used to be in the eighties, and, and you know, because right. it's, it doesn't usually make the news. But, but what you're describing, I mean, is 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 yeah, it is it is troubling. Um, did did you leave before? I mean, I guess my question for you too. So, there was this change kind of 
in even in in the the teaching of right in the kind of the culture of of the professors um did that then seep down into kind of the 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 way enrollment uh, recruitment was done you know did you did the college then all of a sudden say well we got to recruit these kinds of students um or ha ha did you leave before i guess that that became more prevalent yeah here's kind of the dirty secret in higher education there's very few colleges that actually can select their students There, there's like, like, I don't know what the number is now, but when I was leaving, I thought there was less than 10% in the country. And I suspect the numbers are much smaller now. Um, so, so the reality is, is that colleges love the public to think that they're highly selective, but they're not, they're highly selective only in the case that they want somebody with a pulse and a checkbook. And, and I don't mean that in some nasty belittling way. I just mean that, that the market forces are such that, um, and particularly it's even more the case now, right? As demographics really are, are, are creating a vice for colleges that's really difficult to escape. But even when I was there, um, you know, we, we would love to move our statistics up to look better in U.S. News and World Report. But at the end of the day, uh, almost all schools are enrollment driven, which means that they're not funded through their endowment. They're not funded through outside means. They have to have students in their classes to continue to function. Um, and so consequently, it's not so much that uh, ideology, I think, drives some of those schools that can select their students, but most schools are driven more by just getting people in the door. Um, and so then they get what the culture reflects. And to your point with Jonathan Haidt's um, book, you know, Cuddling of the American Mind, um, you get people who come in with a set of ideas that they have been taught from the very beginning, and then they get magnified in college. Um, and colleges are Are, are most colleges, with notable exceptions, some of which you've interviewed in your podcast, most colleges are profoundly uninterested in challenging those ideas. So, so you're talking about kind of the, the, the astronomical cost of higher education, but but there's also this this kind of perceived um, minimized value of education and kind of a skepticism now. Like, is it is college even still worth it? Right? You know, I'm going in debt for for what? Um, I'd love for you to tell our audience uh, kind of the founding story of Unbound and 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 I guess what problem that that you're trying to solve in in the marketplace. Yeah, so um, it has an interesting story, and, and to be clear, I didn't start Unbound. Um, so in 2003, uh, there was these uh, three guys, and they were looking at some of the same problems that I was seeing, but they saw them a little earlier. And uh, one of them wanted to be a missionary, and realized that if he was going to go to, and it was to a culture that valued degrees. And he realized that if he took the time to earn a degree and spent that money, he would no longer be able to afford to be a missionary. And so he was like, how can I do this differently? And so he found these colleges, and they still exist, that were really geared towards adult learners. And they were, and they were kind of colleges that said, we will take a lot of outside credits. So you have to understand, especially at this time, most colleges didn't want to ever take more than 30 credits from outside their own system um, for all kinds of business reasons, as well as reputation and academic uh, integrity issues. But there were some that said, no, no, we exist to help adults earn their degrees and we'll take, you know, 120 credits as a degree. Well, you can register in 117. We'll charge you an, an enrollment fee and, um, and, and basically make sure that all those credits you transfer and meet accreditation standards. And then we'll give you a degree that kind of pulls those in from all these different places. So he looked at those and said, hey, between that, uh, things like credit by exam and online courses, you could do college in a whole different way. And so he did. And um, he did it really fast. He was a he was an actual genius. And so when I say really fast, I mean, like he earned an entire degree in like a year, which is not normal um, and not what most of our students do, of course. Um, but he earned it for like twelve hundred dollars at the time. 
Um, and so he said, wow. So, so, he, so he wrote a book on how to do it. And then people were like, I, I read your book and I can't do this. So they started a company that's kind of coached people through this process. Um, and that company existed from 2003 until 2019. Um, and really was kind of on the leading edge of sort of innovation and education in terms of helping people earn degrees in a flexible way that didn't have debt. Um, however, one of the things that happened through that process was that it worked really well for some people and it really didn't work for a lot of people. Um, and so I came into that in 2010 and was working for them and eventually ended up starting their student life department. Cause I said, Hey, the students we're, we're attracting are really unique, but they feel really isolated. And if we put them together, cool things will happen. And we did that and we put them together in live events and some really amazing things happened. And one of the amazing things that happened was those students almost universally succeeded. Um, so in 2019, uh, that company was sold. Um, but the people that bought it weren't interested in the consumer aspect of it, which was the students I was most interested in. Uh, so we founded a new company and I ended up running that company, taking over that, owning that. Um, and when we did that, we said, let's, let's build a program that's based on some of this educational innovation that we had before, but let's interject in all of this student life stuff that we've been doing so that we have a combination here of some of this educational flexibility connected to real life skills and some real community. Um, and that has been the unbound that, that exists today. And that has been a really fascinating and fun situation. It also is a unique situation. I'm kind of in charge of a young company that's been around since 2003. So, you know, we, we've got, we have literally have over 10,000 alumni. Uh, and so we have a tried and true educational system, but we kind of have a new thing going on now. And so our students that join now are kind of part of something new while they also attach to something old. Um, and that has been a fun, fascinating journey to put all those things together. And it's a, it's a unique heritage and it's been fun now to go back and say, let's take that innovation, tie it to what we know works from other things and then add some new things. And the result has been a lot of fun and, and really successful in terms of uh, the value we can provide students and the kind of culture that we create. Yeah, no, it sounds, it sounds intriguing. And you mentioned that, that your, your students are, are unique. What what is kind of your typical your typical student? What does a yeah. typical student look like at Unbound? Yeah, so I tell people I have this really cool program where I go into a room of twenty students and I explain it, and eighteen of them say I'm not sure this for me, but two of them say I can now not do anything else, and that's that's kind of where I want to be, right? I mean, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a looking to recruit every single person, and in fact, um, I'm also unapologetic about some other things. Uh, if you're looking for the the highest quality, richest academic experience, you should go to Hillsdale or New St. Andrews or Patrick Henry. Um, and in fact, we would, we would guide you there from our admissions process, right? Um, and those places are excellent. But the students I get are very entrepreneurial. Um, they're, they're very often practical. They're quite intelligent, but not always academically. Sometimes they are, um, but more in a practical sense. And uh, they're willing to be different. And they're also pretty engaged in the local community. And so what Unbound does is gives you an opportunity to say, hey, uh, whatever you've invested your local community, your church, all those kinds of things, you can stay invested in that. I can give you a degree if you wish and really powerful certifications that come with some significant academic and leadership and practical skills, and, and we'll bundle those all together. But in the process, I'll also attach you to a group of students who think differently like you. And that network will be so powerful that I will guarantee you'll be employed with or without a degree at the end of our program, if you earn our, our, our final certificate, which is three years, um, or I'll actually refund all of your tuition because I know we're doing something different and I want to pull some of that risk as well. Never had to do it. I've never had to come close to doing it. And that's partly because I have 10,000 alumni who will hire anybody that comes out of our pipeline um, because they are different. And so I tell people, think about a service 
academy level of, of networking. You know, like if you, if you graduate from Annapolis, um, from, from the Navy Academy, um, you can go anywhere in the world and say the year you graduated and every Naval Academy graduate person in that area will say, here, join my club, come to my golf course, do whatever. Now we don't have that kind of volume, but we literally in the situation where my son, um, who's gone through the program uh, a year or so back with another friend, he met through the program, traveled all around the United States backpacking and, uh, and for over a month, they left Virginia, went up to the Dakotas, across to Washington, down through California, and back home through Colorado. And when they weren't on a backcountry permit, they stayed only with unbound families, never paid for a hotel room. And when they broke down the middle of nowhere outside in Montana, they called a guy from Unbound they'd never met before who said, yeah, we'll come out and fix your car. We'll uh, host you for however long it takes, and we'll get you back on the road uh, because you're unbound. Um, and so you have that kind of, you know, if you're willing to, if you have students who are willing to say, Hey, I want to think differently. I want to be involved in my local community, but I want to have a national network and I'm willing to be a little odd. Um, you'll find other people that think the same way. And that creates a really fun culture because you're made up of people that are a bit unique. And I think the best institutions and frankly, the best colleges have that, you know, they, they have people that are willing to do something a bit different and then they're attracted to those who are like-minded. Yeah. Um, well, talk to us a little bit about project-based learning. And I and I would guess that some of our listeners um, might be a little skeptical when it comes to project-based learning, especially as it maybe pertains to like elementary schools, right? Um, right. What does it look like at Unbound? What does it look like project-based learning in, in a higher ed setting? Yeah. So first, and this is not to cater to your audience. Uh, if, if you go find recordings from me speaking in other places, you'll hear the same thing. So I'm, I'm not saying this because of what the podcast that I'm on. But um, one of the advantages that I have is that while I'm not limited exclusively to homeschool students, I have like a 93 or 4% homeschool enrollment, right? Um, and I tend to be, I'm able to do some of the things that I do because the students I get already have a classical education, right? So they've already gone through the trivium. They've, they've already gone through all those things in their high school stuff. And so in my opinion and, and experience, they're better educated than most college graduates on sort of the, what I call the, the knowledge you need to run the Republic by the time they get to me. And I'm, I'm unapologetically building on that momentum. And, and if you don't come with that, we're going to have to backfill it pretty quickly. But for the most of my students do come with that, right? So, so I have a, a deep uh, respect for I, I, my own children do the same kind of thing um, for that kind of rich, deep K through 12 education that I think is necessary. So when I talk about project-based education, there's some interesting things at the high school and elementary levels. I don't do that. Uh, we're talking about post 12 and we're assuming somebody has a pretty rich academic ground that they're standing on. Right. And then they come on and I say, Hey, look, you know, when, when you look at people and say, what did your degree teach you about your job? Most people say it didn't teach me anything about my job. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think actually uh, most degrees ought not to be catered to jobs. They ought to be catered to the liberal arts kinds of big ideas that are important. But here's the thing. If you got that K through 12, I don't know how many of us need to really double down on that further on. It's a luxury for sure. But I don't, and when I say that we should do that, I think everybody should do it. But I don't know that you have to actually have an official education to do that, right? I mean, like I continue to read, certainly continue to learn and all those things. But there are people that say like, get on with the doing part of it, right? And so project-based education for us means that the heart of our program is actually around that. And we say, look, you're going to take these courses, you're going to learn these skills, but you're not going to really know them unless you apply them. So our first year students with us have to take an idea from an idea to reality. Um, and it has to be an idea that's challenging for that student and they have to kind of figure it out. And look, if you have people that can take an idea from an idea to reality, you have people that are well-equipped to do well in life, right? 
Um, then second year students have to take somebody else's idea from an idea to reality because we're not going to all be entrepreneurs, nor should we be, right? Um, and even entrepreneurs should work for somebody else at some point. And then third year students have to have a team, a group of people take an idea from an idea to reality. And those ideas have to be big enough that they're going to dominate most of your year. Um, and now we're saying, we're constantly challenging our students saying, what is your classes teaching you? What is your academics teaching you that relates to what you're learning in some of our practical skills courses, which is related to what you're actually doing for real and this real life stuff that you're doing. And so sometimes the example I use is that, you know, it's not a case study, it's a reality. If you want to learn about business, start a business or go to work for somebody. If you want to learn about, if you, if you want to be a, a musician, um, yeah, certainly study music, but get on some stages, uh, release an album. And so we have that kind of sort of take your theory and make it reality as quickly as possible aspect to the program. That's a lot of fun. And again, I, unapologetically, not for everybody, but for those who it's for, it, it gives a, a, you know, a set of power tools to a, a ideas and abilities that can really launch students in a, in a pretty fun and fantastic way. Yeah. But, but uh, it, that's the, the, in a way, the counter cultural and counterintuitive way to do it. But with your experience at, 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 as a director of admissions, where you kind of You kind of have to be for everyone. I mean, how would you say it has a yeah. has a pulse in the checkbook, um, right? right? I'm a Hillsdale College graduate, and and uh, Hillsdale is is unapologetically who they are, and they always say we want to attract the right kind of students, and we want the wrong kind of students to run away as far as they can, right? We're not for exactly. we're not for everyone, um, and so that's beautiful. I what went through your website, of course, in preparation, and and one uh, you call it an educational framework uh, called ADULT, right. A-D-U-L-T, Ask, Do, Understand, Live, Thrive. I was intrigued by that, and I would love for you to ex expound on that. What does that model kind of look like in practice for your students? Yeah, so I think that any kind, and this is my kind of classical, and, 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 and you know, I graduated with honors from college. I care about academics, right? And so I, I wanted to make sure that we had something that cohesively held us together. And we said, let's, let's make sure that whatever we're doing makes sense and is oriented correctly. And so let's look at some things that I think are necessary, at least right now, but are tied to universals. So we teach students all the time, look, we're trying to teach you principles. Things are true no matter what. Um, but we're trying to give you perspective on those. And so the innovation is on the perspective, not the principle, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, we're trying to teach you new truths. We're trying to teach you old truths in a new way. And so when we say ask, do, understand, live, thrive, we say ask is this reality that we live in a questions-based paradigm, not an answers-based paradigm anymore. Um, when I went to college, went to high school, if I wanted to learn something new, I had to drive to the library, pull the card catalog, find the book, read about it, memorize it, or take notes about it because I would have to go back and repeat the process later. That's an answers-based paradigm where the more answers that are in your head, the more advantage you have to organizations you work for. We're in a questions-based paradigm now where not only can you get answers immediately, uh, AI is now generating answers that aren't even true immediately. And so that means that you have to have more emphasis on being able to ask the right questions and be able to evaluate those answers by asking questions. And look, from a Christian point of view, I think this is actually makes sense in terms of our worldview, right? We're not relativists, but we also believe in an infinite God and an eternity where we're going to continue to be asking questions about him. This is just preparation for that. Every question should move us closer to the truth. And I believe there is a truth with capital T. We're not relativists. Um, but that, that aspect and that attitude of inquiry is what sets us apart, both as, as in terms of our faith, but also in terms of your practical ability to move in this world that is now no longer an answers-based paradigm. So that's the ask part. Uh, do, of course, is a project-based education. So like, how are you going to then apply what you've learned? Um, understand is helping our students understand a couple of big things. The first is to understand that you're part of a story. 
And so this is very much the part that we come from a, a Christian perspective. But I think that most of our world pretends like it operates like a Spock in a world that is not logical. Right. I mean, like they they think that things are logical, but I and I the example I use all the time is I tell people I own a motorcycle. I can give you three pages of logical reasons why it's smart for me to own a motorcycle. All of those came after I decided I want a motorcycle. Right. I like the story of having a motorcycle, and then I generated the two pages of ideas to convince my wife that it was a good idea for me to get a motorcycle. And she already knew that that was all complete garbage. <laughs> and, she, and we talked about it in the story side, you know. And so there's an aspect of this that understanding the story, but then understanding some core things about how people work. One of the things that drives me pretty crazy is that I have people that think that they have to figure out everything by the time they're 18. They have to know what they're going to do with the rest of their life. They have to know what they're going to major in. They have to know what college they're going to go to. And they think if they get any of those wrong, they're going to end up doing whatever job they think is the worst menial task in the world. And, and I continually tell students that this is, it's not about that. And particularly in today's world, it's not about knowing what job you want to do. It's, it's knowing if you're a create, a connect, or a coordinate person. It's knowing that if you want to work in storytelling, operations, or vision when it comes to a company. And if you understand some of those things, then those are transferable skills. No matter what technology does, we're always going to need operations people. We're always going to need storytelling, marketing, and salespeople. We're always going to need vision people. And there's always going to be room for people who connect to other people. And there's always going to be room for people that can coordinate people that are connecting. And there's always going to be room for people who can create new ideas. And uh, knowing and learning how to be those people ends up being a transferable skill. So that's the understand part. And then uh, live is very much uh, based on resilience, and it's got a lot to do with the coddling of the American mind. And it's the opposite of all the arguments put in this book. Uh, you know, we basically say, you no, know, to live means that what doesn't kill you make you stronger, um, that you cannot trust your feelings. Uh, there's some things called reality that you have to deal with. Um, and that, you know, the line of good and evil runs right to the middle of the human heart according to Solzhenitsyn and so and according to our Christian worldview so you don't ever get the luxury I tell my students you unfortunately and I'm sorry you don't get the luxury of fighting orcs uh, you, you always have to see every single person you see is made in the image of God and so to understand that is to live then with resilience and then that leads to thrive which is an education has to be more than just a way to get a better paycheck uh, the president of the college I worked for who I, I really admire and respect and still do, used to get up on stage and say, in the 1930s, the German people were the most educated people on the face of the planet. That did not work out well for the rest of the world. And so there has to be more to an education than just A's and B's and grades. And so we say, look, at the end of the day, thrive means that you have time to rest because you're not God. And you have time to prioritize relationships because that's what we're made for. All these things only happen in the context of relationships. And if an education gets you to there, it's an education that was useful. And if it takes you to someplace else, you got to sort of ask some questions. Yeah, no, thanks for, thanks for elaborating on that. And it it sounds like, I mean, we're, we mentioned kind of some of the, the, the progressive buzzwords, right? Like 21st century skills or global citizenship or critical thinking, right? And then you have kind of more of the, either conservative or what liberal arts institutions talk about, right? The human formation and the developing of the mm-hmm. heart and the mind and the soul. It it sounds like, and, and tell me if that's a fair assessment, that Unbound seems to kind of combine those two, um, it, it blend those two. Um, is that is that is that accurate? Yeah, I might I might adjust that just slightly. Yeah. Um, and that is that I'm actually profoundly uninterested in the 21st century buzzwords, right? So because I feel like I feel like those are only useful if they're perspectives on things that are true no matter what. So the things that you say about the human condition, all those things, I want to teach my student, like there are things that are true, like gravity is true. Like, like that, and, and, and you have to understand those things. And this is about giving you a perspective to understand those. But there's different ways to do that. 
So a very rich academic way will give you a very academic way of looking at those same truths. And that's really important. And everybody ought to have some taste of that. And some people who are going on to be going to go on to become judges and doctors and lawyers and all those attorneys, they really need to know those things from an academic perspective. But there's also a perspective to learn those things that comes through a much more practical hands-on way. Uh, just a real fast, I know our time might be getting tight here, a real fast example of this. You know, when we study the American Revolution, you study the Jeffersons and the Washingtons and the Madisons and those ideas and stuff like that. However, you know, part of the American in the United States becoming a world power had to do with her naval power. And so there were ideas, but those ideas then were lived out by people in Boston and Virginia and the seaports who were practically making money and practically running businesses and generating the economic base that, that funded or not <laughs> the Continental Army. But also think about the incredible knowledge it took to build the kind of ships that were the highest technological uh, uh, marvels of their age to sail the seas and do it in a way that bested a power that was that was their bread and butter. The, the British Navy was the most important in the world, right? Um, in other words, both were necessary. You had to have the thinkers, but then you had to have the people that took the things that the idea, the idea people thought about and had to make them work. And those people were brilliant in their own right. I mean, like what it took to build a, a, a ship in that time period and rig it and sail it and, and do the math and trigonometry required to navigate it and, and, and you know, and, and sail it across the world and come back and figure out all those things and do it profitably. Um, those things were all tremendous amounts of knowledge and skill and ability. Um, and, and those things are still, we still need the people that are generating the ideas that are in the think tanks and writing the books and teaching the courses. And those people are absolutely essential, but you also need people who take those ideas and actually make them work. And Unbound is very firmly in that camp. We're, we're very much the shipbuilders, if you will, in the sense that we're taking those good ideas and we're saying these things are important. We're not in opposition to them. We're actually taking them to their practical conclusion and we're putting them in action. Um, so that would be my kind of slight adjustment to your yeah. statement there. Yeah, well taken. Yeah, no, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, well, before we get to our la last question that we always ask on the Angry Podcast, uh, if if our audience wants to learn more about about Unbound, your program, uh, website, what's the best way to way to connect? Yeah, so the website is beunbound.us, uh, uh, and so we and it's be so beunbound.us, and if of course if you go to slash anchored, uh, you'll find some special things for listeners of the podcast and some things that may be uh, more attractive to folks who are listening to your podcast. So there's that landing page for you there if you'd like to go there and find some free things. So awesome, wonderful. Well, um, let's get to the last question, Jonathan. Um, oftentimes, the most difficult one to answer for because you have to pick one. Um, what would you say is the one book or one text that has been most influential or impactful in your life and why? Well, you know, the whole time I've been thinking that I was going to fudge this and give you more than one. And then you just sort of put that extra little stick in there. Um, so I guess you don't allow any of that fudging like with one category or anything like that, right? Um, this is really difficult for me. I, I read about 75 to 100 books a year as, as a personal goal. And, and also it's just for fun. I mean, I don't, I do it because I, I like to, I love to read. And so it's hard for me to come back to one. So I was, I actually went through my, I keep a reading list and I went through my reading list and I was trying to find the book that I read most often. Um, and so there's there's two categories, fiction and nonfiction. And so if I have to go to one, I probably read Mere Christianity more than any other um, one nonfiction book. Uh, and and so that's my book. So that's that's my fulfilling your request. But I said in Understand, we talk about story. And so I'll, I'll add with something that's a little – because Mere Christianity is a very classical uh, anchored type response, Right. Um, and yet, Unbound's a little not different in the sense, but we we 
take a little different angle on things. So I, I just would leave your readers with, or your listeners with this interesting idea. There's an author named Louis L'Amour, Louis L'Amour, and he wrote Westerns, and they are not classical literature. They, they, are, they are popular paperback literature, right? And my grandfather and father loved them. And so I grew up literally in a house with paper bags full of these books, okay, grocery bags. And I read them constantly. And at one point in college, I was confronted as an RA with a bunch of very large, drunk football players. And for for reference, I was a cross-country runner, which means I wasn't big. And it never occurred to me to let them do what they want to do, which is against the rules. But my very large football player RA buddy skipped out of me because he didn't want to get hurt so he wouldn't have to – he would be able to play the next week. And I just totally thought that didn't make any sense, like the world didn't work that way. And it took me years to realize that the reason that I thought that and and sort of kept my suicidal stand was because of the stories that I read. And, and there is, so I would just leave that, that, you know, mere Christianity certainly is a book I've read most often, but I read a lot of fiction and, and I am continually reminded of how those stories end up being driving factors in the way we live our lives in ways we don't even expect. Um, so that's my, my way of answering, but also cheating a little. So I hope you don't mind. Sorry. That's okay. Not at all. And, and I'm actually, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my, my, my childhood and my, my father, there's a German author, his name is Karl May, and he wrote, um, these many, many, many books about this character named Winnetou. And it's a c- typical like cowboy versus Indian, but then becoming mm-hmm, friend story. Mm-hmm. And the paperbacks were everywhere and he would read them all the time. And I would read them all the time. And I haven't read them in so long, but I think I'm going to pick them up now again. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia there. Um, so no, I really appreciate your- And I suspect it drives it. some of your thinking in ways that you don't even think. 100%. At least that's what I've, I found that like, you know, you don't back down in front of bullies. And it, and it wasn't that my parents had explicitly stated that, but I'd read- you know, 80 books that said that that's the way people act. And, um, and, and that there was a happy ending of that story. I did not get my head beat in. So uh, <laughs> oh, we, were, we were able to come to a negotiated uh, truce. So. Wonderful. Well, this has been absolutely delightful. Again, we're here with Jonathan Brush, president and CEO of Unbound. Uh, go check them out. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.